This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Sunny Side Up by Dan DeWitt, a book about a life-changing breakfast conversation that encourages men to live wholeheartedly for Christ. More information at thegoodbook.com. This is the Gospel Coalition podcast, where we seek to renew the contemporary church in the ancient gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Today's podcast is a panel discussion on loving whole families of children in need. Panelists are Rosaria Butterfield, Sandra Hardy, Danae Pierre, and Regina Robinson. It was recorded at the Gospel Coalition's 2018 Women's Conference in Indianapolis. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, you have given us a command that is, um, it is majestic it is powerful, it is at the center of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that as we talk today and as we share today, that you will leave us better equipped to seek out the stranger and to make that stranger a neighbor and to seek out our neighbors and to welcome them as family of God. Lord, help us to stand with those who are mistreated. Help, me to, help us to know who they are. And I pray, Lord, that you would be given all the glory and all the honor, and that you would fill your kingdom, Lord, with people who, who, who desperately need to know you, who love you. Um, and Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity that you give us uh, to be used in this way. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. I have no idea what happened to the lights. I have no idea. So in my Bible, against uh, right next to the margins here, in Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, is a name. And that name is Jessica Ashley Gibson. And Jessica is the girl that we didn't adopt. She was trouble, and she was troubled. When I met her, she was 16 years old, and she was in a group home, and I was her mentor. And she would come to my home for um, pizza. Um, we crocheted a granny square blanket together. Um, she helped me one year with VBS. She came to me and she said, Rosaria, how are we going to control these people without straitjackets or medication? <laughs> it's actually a very good question. Now, we, have, uh, we had adopted other children, and at the time, we had just adopted a teenage girl, um, also Jessica's age. We, we were not able to adopt two teenagers at the same time. We also had a little 16-month-old baby, um, and it was a busy house. But we learned something important about what happened when we didn't adopt Jessica. When she turned 18, they moved her into an adult center where she was abused, and then we lost touch with her. We got a phone call a couple of years. Um, she moved out of the state. 
Because we didn't adopt her, we actually had no legal rights to either her whereabouts or her well-being. And then the very saddest thing of all was that as we were adopting our second teenager, a social work worker whispered in my ear that Jessica had hanged herself on her 21st birthday in a homeless shelter in New York. I share this with you because that's what's written in my Bible. I share this with you because I, like others on this panel, are here at this conference and it's a little surreal. And it's a little surreal because the people we love most and care for the most could no sooner be at this conference than they could walk on the moon. So as we talk today about loving whole families in Christ, we're going to remember just a couple of important, important things. That it's very risky to say yes to people, and it's even more risky to say no. And that the commands that the Lord has given us that we can fulfill. The Lord actually gives us no command without giving us the grace to obey it. And that's true whether you're dealing with sin and temptation or whether you're dealing with mercy. And so what we're going to do today is to share some of the ways that the Lord has blessed us to pursue the stranger. And you know, as soon as a stranger walks through the threshold of your doors, you know what happens? That's not a stranger anymore. But to pursue, to seek out um, the category of stranger and to, and, to, and to live as neighbors and then to, by God's grace, uh, become family of God, even with those, with those neighbors. So we know that um, we're not going to be talking about do-gooderism here. You know, I mean, we like, we like doing, doing good things. Uh, but this is not works righteousness. We know that every single human being on the planet is going to swing somewhere on that pendulum between uh, uh, human dignity and human depravity. We know that people need more than um, just, um, just care. They need more than a kind of liberal communitarianism. They need the gospel. But the gospel comes with more than words. The gospel comes with deeds. The gospel comes with even more than the word of God. It comes with the hands and feet of Jesus, and that would be us. Um, so we are a fragile people, and in this room, I know that we have a lots of people who are adopted children. We have lots of people who are mothers by adoption. We have birth mothers. We have post-abortive moms, post-abortive women. We have. So we're going to talk... Uh, openly and, and kindly about one another, remembering that Jesus always leads from the front of the line. So what's happened, God is more merciful than we are. We know that. Um, so, uh, we, um, so I'm Rosaria. I have had the pleasure of um, being in the foster care and adoption world for over a decade. Um, by God's grace, we were able to adopt two teenagers and two babies, and my babies are now middle school and, and high school, and one is sitting up here crocheting in the front row. Um, um, I've officially adopted people who stand a foot taller than I do. Um, you know, I'm five foot two, so that's okay. Um, um, we currently um, 
work with a program called Safe Family, which is a Christian alternative to foster care. And I'm a pastor's wife. And over the years of our, of our ministry and our life, there's one thing that keeps coming back, and it's Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. For all of the hardships, for all of the hassles, for all of the challenges, for all of the ministries that we've lost and the ministries that we've gained, the Lord has always kept us very close to these verses, and it has been a real challenge and a blessing. And so what I would like to do now is just ask each of our panelists to introduce yourselves and just share a little bit about what, um, what brings you here to a panel about the called loving whole families in need? What, what, you, what dog you got in the race? <laughs> I'm Regina Robinson, and um, I live in Boston, Massachusetts with my husband and four children, 12, 10, 8, and 5. And um, the reason I'm here today is because um, I've been in higher education for 20 years, uh, been a church planner for 12, and 11 years ago, um, when we moved to Boston, our son was, I became pregnant with our second child. And um, no surprise there, it's what happens when you're married. Um, and having already expect, known what to expect when you're expecting, um, a routine ultrasound went south very quickly when the doctor told us something is wrong with your baby and then showed us on the screen the different things that were wrong with him and told us to terminate the pregnancy all in one sentence. Um, so having just moved from Virginia, my mom is here um, and a loving family. I'm a preacher's kid, preacher's wife, been in the church all my life. Um, and at that moment, I had no verse. I had nothing. I just had a moment of despair because they said termination and it took a second to recognize what they were telling me. Um, and then he left and brought in another radiologist, and she said the same thing. Um, and they said, yeah, it's too, too sad, too early. You need to terminate the pregnancy. So um, we said no because we wanted to um, see our son and meet him. And um, it took us down a very challenging journey in the city of Boston because Boston is where Harvard is. Actually, Cambridge is where Harvard is. They like to remind us of that. And um, we entered into the world of Harvard Medical School and all of the elitists and specialists around the world, the best and the brightest, um, who we saw and who um, just really disregarded our walk, our journey. Um, never spoke to us about our son, only talked about the management option and then the um, shame of the choice that we made. And upon having him, um, a few days after he was born, neurologist confirmed he did not have the initial diagnosis that they told us he would have that was the cause for the termination decision. Um, and when I tell you that I was on the verge of either one or the other ABW moments, either an angry black woman moment <laughs> or an articulate bold woman moment, and I'm grateful for the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit that I was able to have an articulate, bold woman moment um, to simply ask the neurologist, how did we get here? <laughs> how did we get to this point? So that opened up our eyes and our hearts to the journey of disability. Um, our son has Down syndrome, um, as though that was the second death sentence that they were giving us. And if you've ever met someone with Down syndrome, right? You talk about a dance party waiting to happen right. Right. on any given day. 
on any given day. And so um, our son is turning 11 next month. Um, he's the mayor of his classroom. But um, it really opened up our eyes to the disparities in the world of disability. And even more so, the disparities among people of color impacted by disability. Boston has 57,000 students in Boston public schools um, and 11,000 students with IEPs, Individualized Education Plans. And on a monthly basis, only about 100 parents come to special education parent advisory council meetings. So there's a huge gap in parent education, parent advocacy, parent agency. And 40% of our youth are English language learners. So when you have English language learners who also have special needs, the gap is even wider. So enter into the ministry, the Robinsons, who are thinking they're planting a church and impacting medical students, and God says, and you'll impact medical doctors, physicians, specialists around the world um, who will wonder why you're doing what you're doing and why you can still manage to have a smile on a good day. <laughs> Um, so I'm here because loving the stranger um, sometimes means um, when you thought you were going to the mission field to be a missionary and God said, no, that's person-centered. You're going to be missional, which is purpose-centered. It's process-centered. And in the process of our journey, he did more in me and through me than I intended to do in Boston for Boston. So I'm here to just um, share a lot of the journey of what it's looked like in Boston the last decade to love families because you can't impact kids without really striving hard to impact their families in creative and complex ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. So I am Danae and I, um, you <laughs> All right, there we go. I'm Danae, and I have four children. So we live in Phoenix, Arizona. My older two, Marcel and Maya, uh, we were gifted to um, foster and then adopt when they were eight and five years old. Um, and then our younger two kids are biological. And in between uh, the, four, the growing of our family, we fostered uh, three, or three teenagers and two babies. And, and in our journey, um, began to get to know different birth parents who were the parents of our foster children. Um, and as we began to journey with teenagers, especially, um, God just opened up our hearts for uh, family reunification, family reconciliation. Um, a lot of mem members of our church began to foster and adopt, and we just began to quickly see how easy it is to kind of jump into foster care with the desire to rescue or save and, and the judgment placed on families who, who have child welfare involvement um, didn't seem to reflect the heart of God. And so as we started you know, working with families who are fostering and adopting and also walking alongside birth parents and starting some different ministries and nonprofits related to that, we just realized there was this huge cultural gap. Like the church was like charging the hill, we're gonna wipe out the foster care system and adopt a bunch of kids. And and God did some beautiful things. Lots of churches mobilized, lots of people got involved, but the language around birth family was was very dehumanizing and very judgmental and very othering. And so that was that was that was a big part of our journey. And then in addition Three years ago, as we were, or maybe, maybe it was four years ago now, as we were engaging um, in our city, um, the initial, kind of the news stories that are breaking right now about unaccompanied minors sleeping in these, you know, gated little rooms, um, that was breaking four years ago. And there was just hundreds of kids, specifically in our Arizona borders, that were um, coming up through Honduras and Central America. 
And so we were able to be a part of this really beautiful opportunity to help gather 30 or 30 or foster families and um, begin to offer short-term foster care. And so I, I got to spend a lot of time with those kiddos in uh, middle schooler age, um, anywhere from five, anywhere from four up to eighth grade age. Um, and again, God just kind of broke open our hearts for the, the, the systemic nature. You cannot look at a child and not understand all the systemic pain and injustice that started years and decades and generations back that led to this moment in which a mother and father and child are all separated. And so that's kind of been our, that's been our journey. I'm a pastor's wife in downtown Phoenix, and um, I really just love seeing reconciliation in families, um, in, our, in our church. It's just so a key to the gospel and just such a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. And so as much as we're talking about adoption and foster care, and I am really thankful that the church is talking about it so much more, I want to see us be so put the majority, like 90% of our energy towards working upstream, preventative, you know, helping families not get to that place or walking with families in that place. Thank you. Hello, my name is Sandra Hardy, and I currently live in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, we moved there in 2012. Um, my husband is a church planter, and so we moved to Birmingham from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was born and raised, um, to uh, plant the church in a city called Fairfield, which is just a little bit um, west of Birmingham in Alabama. And so we moved there um, prior to moving to Alabama, I um, was the director of a nonprofit organization, so I have a lot of nonprofit experience working with um, people mostly in urban, low-income areas, um, pr primarily with education, um, job-related um, placement, and just helping people really uh, get on their feet to be self-sustainable. And so when we moved to Birmingham, um, we started the church in 2012, but we also started a nonprofit. Um, the church is called Urban Hope Community Church, and we started a nonprofit called Urban Hope Development. And so most of my work has been with, um, with the Urban Hope Development in educational related initiatives, primarily working with middle school students, low income middle school students um, in the city of Fairfield, and if, I don't know if you know anything about Fairfield, but it's a city that has been, um, that's had a lot of businesses pull out, so there was a big steel mill there that pulled out, Walmart pulled out, it's, it's kind of a shell of a city, and so it used to be a place where um, it was a drawing place, people look forward to coming there now, uh, businesses have left, and so that's where our church is. Um, many of the people are unemployed. Um, the educational system is, um, it's getting better, but it's, it's, most of the students are below grade level, particularly in, in reading and writing. So my focus has been to work with those students and their parents. We do a, and actually we're in the process of doing it right now, a summer camp in the month of June. For these students, I work with 40 students, and then I also work with the same students year-round, and so our focus is math and reading. Um, most of the students, as I said, are at least three or four grade levels below on um, both of those subjects, and so our goal is to help 
um, during the summer, Stop Summer Learning Loss. If any of you are familiar with that, it's where students, particularly, particularly if they're in low-income areas, they lose knowledge during the summer. And so when they go back to school in the fall, they're that much further behind. And so my focus is not just on those students, but also on their parents. Um, their parents, a lot of them didn't finish school, so we also have a program where we help um, their parents or adults, other adults in the community, get their, their high school diploma. And um, so that's, so once they get that, we also help them get employment. So there's a lot of different factors that we try to address, not just the student, but we know that they, the students go home. And so there's a lot of um, issues that, within the home that if we, if we can't help the, the parents, that we really aren't being as effective as we can be for the students. And so that's really my focus, those students who are in need, um, those parents of those students who also are in need and try to come alongside of them and work with them to be, so that they can be self-sustainable and to be all that God created them to be. And so. Yeah, thank you. So as we talk about loving whole families in need, we are talking about some different categories and different needs and different issues. When we talk about adoption, we're not talking about coveting other people's children. We don't adopt children to fulfill us. That's not why the church adopts children. So I mean, that, that may be one of the narratives you hear, but that's not why the church does it. The only people eligible for adoption are orphans. And when we're talking about foster children, we're not talking about orphans. We're not. We're talking about, at this point, children who have a relationship with parents, and unless the civil magistrate is involved for uh, cases of abuse or neglect, or unless a parent um, uh, is, is uh, you know, tragically dies of an illness or terminates his or her own parental rights, that, is a, that child is still a member of a family that's not ours. And we've also talked about the need to partner with, and in, in you know, Sandra's case, actually create agencies that allow you access to children, that give you the, the right and the responsibility to know people by name, to, to wipe their tears, to put their hands on uh, the pencil properly. Um, and we're also talking about um, the way that disability and race and class work together in ways that are not part of our imagination, and are in ways that you simply can't just um, wish away. They're there for us to grapple with and deal with. And, and even in the most important and powerful medical establishment in the country, guess what? They're not God. They read an ultrasound, they read it wrong, and they give you the worst advice in the world, and yet God oversees and protects because he loves As I life. like to say, I would tell the Harvard medical students when I speak, um, mm. my title is MD doesn't equal G-O-D. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. So, so and it I, baffles them. Uh, amen. <laughs> amen. And you know, I really like Regina's acronyms. I'm thinking that we just need, we need a little, you know, like sometimes you do a book afterwards or like a little, I just need the acronyms. I really like them. Yeah. It's coming. It's coming. Okay, very good. Very good. Forthcoming. Um, so I'm going to just throw some questions out, and we're all going to 
take a stab at it, and then we'll leave some room for these fine women here to ask questions of us. And then I'm going to close us with some um, calls for action. So, um, so let's begin. Sandra, I'll, I'll begin with you, if I may, and, and we can all take, take a stab at this. What are some of the myths about poor people as it relates to education and their children? And, and is there some way that small churches can get involved without being invasive and without being part of the problem and not part of the solution? There are several myths that I have encountered um, as I work with parents as it relates to their children. And oftentimes, um, the, one of the myths is that these, even though they're, they're low-income parents, that they don't care about education, that they don't care about their children learning. Um, oftentimes, there are extenuating circumstances within that family or within that home that may lead to mm -hmm. that perception but these parents care about their children. They care about their children's academics. They want their children to learn. They want the same things um, for their children as other middle, upper income families want for their, their kids. And so that's a myth that, that parents don't care about education or don't want their kids to learn. Um, also, that they don't see education important. They, they do see education important. Uh, many times parents haven't had the education that they would have liked or wanted to have. Oftentimes there are, again, different situations that have either caused them to drop out or not complete school. And so for that fact, they, they know the value of education and so they want their kids um, and they know the value of education. So they do want their kids to get educated. Um, and then also many times, and I, I know that this is true and parents have to be um, encouraged in this, is that is, is having the ability to advocate for their child. So often parents don't feel like they can approach the school or they maybe don't know the wording or the, the terminology or the process to get for their child what their child needs. Um, they may know that their child is behind or underperforming, but they, they don't know you know, how far up the chain they can go or just how to navigate that process. And so those are just some of the, some of the myths. And um, in terms of how small churches can come alongside, um, with our experience, we're, we're a small church, um, church plant. We probably have 30 to 40 people on an average Sunday. And what we have been able to do is we have a lot of church partners um, in Birmingham. If you're familiar with Birmingham, there's um, what's called Over the Mountain. Anybody familiar with Over the Mountain? Um, Birmingham has a history um, historically, um, 60s, civil rights. And so there's over the mountain where there's, there's a lot of more affluent churches, middle income churches versus where Fairfield is. And so um, we have been able to partner with over the mountain churches. They have become our church partners where we, um, they help to support us, not just financially, but also with um, experience, with expertise. Um, and we have been able to to shape our program to be able to, to address many of the needs of our families, of our students, of their parents. Um, the, the word and deed um, model is what we do, not just we give the word, you know, word of God, but we also come with deeds to help encourage and, um, you know, help the parents along. So 
So there's a lot of restored dignity that goes into helping parents advocate for their children. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's one really important takeaway. And the other important takeaway is that poverty is not a sin. Yeah. So a church is quite capable of helping, but often we're also quite capable of hurting. Mm -hmm. And I think we're all familiar with the, the title of that book, when, when Helping Hurts. For those of us who have been on the helping side, helping always hurts. And it always hurts because it means getting involved in people's business and then managing secrets well. So we, we want to always be careful how we, we want to restore dignity. And, and so if it's hard to restore dignity and help parents advocate for their children when there's also a lot going on. In, in our experience in, um, in living communally with um, a, a Christian family displaced by homelessness recently, we, we, we came to learn that um, it is very, very common for post-traumatic stress disorder and homelessness and poverty to go together because of the enormous, daunting, unending stress of not knowing if you're going to lose your child of not knowing where you're going to sleep now that you don't have a home, of, of watching all of your solutions work, you know, fall apart, of seeing people take advantage of you. Those are all really hard things. So if it's hard for parents who are struggling with poverty to advocate for their children who are falling behind in school for, for again, good and, good and understandable reasons, Danae, how much harder is it is, is it for um, parents whose children have been removed and are in the foster care. What's that, can you tell us a little bit what that's like from the parent's point of view and also from the children's point of view? Yeah, I think what makes, it, what makes foster care really challenging is one, the way the system is set up is most of our cities, the people they recruit to foster are in a completely different part of the city than families who are needing care. So even we do say families too, and even that's been a challenge in our city because you have a family an hour away who's able to host a child, care for a child, and the family so far. So the, um, the lack of proximity is a huge challenge, and that's rooted historically to how our city, you know, injustices and in how our cities and neighborhoods were set up. Um, so, but, but with foster care, you know, when you think about the, these parents, one from, from day one that the uh, government removes their children, um, they're fighting a lot, they're, they're fighting uphill. Mm -hmm. So it's not a system that's built to help provide opportunity for a second chance and healing and restoration and maybe um, be able to overcome addictions or walk out of, um, have a pathway out of a violent relationship. Um, and a lot of the parents that we work with are kids who are raised in the foster care system themselves. So we've had multiple teens now who, who become parents pretty young and their kids end up in the system. And so you, you see how the effects of a whole generation of kids being in group homes and aged out and put into the streets or into the prison system has also, it like, it like replicates, it's multiplying this brokenness. And so I say this as someone who's also worked with parents who have done a lot of harm mm -hmm. um, to kids. And so it's not, I'm not, I'm not wanting to like romanticize it, mm -hmm. but it's just so complex. And what happens with Foster, the foster care, uh, the parents in the foster care system is everyone is seeing them from a deficit mm -hmm. lens. Like they see them as hopeless, 
they kind of have the scarlet letter A on them. Like, how could you do, especially if you're a mother, how could you do this to your children? And, and even in the church, there's a lot of language. And as we walk with foster families, we will start to hear um, what, what a child might be offered in a middle-class suburban home as opposed to their family of origin. And, it, and it's just, there's just this deficit. Like, what does that family not have to give their children? Um, and so, so when you think of all those dynamics, I think the gospel, you know, Jesus, God looks at us um, not, not through a deficit lens because of Christ. Mm-hmm. He's able to see us um, through this abundant, you know, we're given all these abundant gifts that our life story is God mining those things in us mm-hmm. and, re- and healing us and restoring us and using us beyond what we, and, and for us to be able to do that to others is a really powerful um, thing where we're not so much help, necessarily only helping families. We're walking alongside them and unlocking what God's already placed in them. Um, and, and in that, there is just the normal, any kind of brokenness you've had in your family, a family member who has addictions they need to overcome or you know, a very destructive relationship that they need to have space from. Like In general, that is painful. It's all-consuming. And you have grandparents and aunts and uncles and people you can pull on. But when you're talking about the foster care system, you're talking about a lot of isolation, a lot of brokenness, and not necessarily having access to those family members um, by, the, by the choice of the government. Sometimes families very much wanting to be involved, but there can be all this delayed, um, systemic delay in getting to a grandma or getting to an aunt. Um, so just, just it's kind of this... this if I, I, when I do teaching in churches, I'll have people, I'll have someone come up and hold a soccer ball and someone else hold a medicine ball. And I'll start talking. And it's like, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, the person with the medicine ball is like, I usually pick a big guy and their arms are like falling. You know, they're so exhausted. Like, that's what you're talking about. The challenges of poverty and generational brokenness and then displacement from family and then not having transportation and then Job, ch- you know, challenges for jobs because of you know, a minor drug charge 18 years ago. It's like there's all these complex things mm-hmm. that you're asking someone to hold all these weights and get and then do calculus. It's like mm-hmm. it just it doesn't add up without community and help. Yeah, no, that's really that's really helpful. And then and then so another another thing to think about that Danae's bringing to our attention is that for every probably for most of us, we have many circles of support. So if something happened, like I lost my health, there, there's, a, there's, a support, there's a support team that's, that's going to come in. Um, if, I, if I lost my job, there would be a support team that would come in. But in families that have no circle of support, um, families who have recently immigrated to this country, families who are not part of a church, um, the, the welfare state approach is to remove the child from that home. And, and you know, Danae and I, we are not being Pollyanna. We, we can tell you stories that you don't want to hear and that we don't want to tell. Um, but we also know, I mean, my oldest daughter, we adopted at 16, and I was her 11th foster mother. She has been in the foster care system since she was six weeks old. That was not helpful. Um, there were a lot of other situations also, but, but for the child, the, the foster care system talks about having goals, and the goals tend to be reunification or adoption. And um, you, again, for many people, it would be easier to walk on the moon uh, because there are a lot of barriers. Now, some of those barriers are, involve sin, and, and those, are, those are serious, that's serious stuff. Some of those barriers in, in involve bu- abuse, and we're not being Pollyanna about it. 
But some of those barriers involve lacking a support system and being poor. And you know, often I've hear, I hear Christians feel like, well, you know, the welfare state has it covered. You know, the, the social, it, it's working fine. It's not working fine. Uh, it's not working fine, and in fact, we've seen opportunities where a church, families in the church, can support a family in need, and that child never goes into foster care. Um, and you know, the less agency involvement, the better, and, and not, not because agencies aren't helpful and good, but because the more agency involvement, the more that that person's going to lack dignity, the more that helping's going to hurt, because the more invasive the help's going to be. So, Regina, add special needs issues to this question of poverty and race and also geography. What's another thing that I don't want to lose that thread, that if we all live according to the privilege that we have, may I tell you something? You will be of no use to the people who most need you. So if, if, if your idea of looking for a home is let me find a home that allows me to uh, be in the nicest neighborhood I can, given my income, um, you're not going to be really able to serve in the way that these children need. It, I'm just putting that out there. In moving to Boston, we wanted to be very intentional of living in the city. And um, Boston has different components of the city um, geographically where you can live among the affluent if you, if you want to, and you can live among mixed income. <laughs> Um, or lower income. Um, we knew that we were starting a church in, in Boston, so we wanted to be among the people in Boston. Um, what we realized very quickly, though, is there's cultural pride in Boston, and those who are on, in my listening session last night, I can see some smiling already, um, because I, I shared a story um, where my eyes were opened to the fact that black people weren't black and white people weren't white um, in TJ Maxx because I was looking at a dress that was super cute and a woman came towards me. I thought she was black and she was Haitian. She told me where she was from. Um, I heard her talking on her phone and, and not in English and Haitian Creole. And so we started having a conversation and it was a lovely conversation. And then a few minutes later, a white woman comes towards us and she's, um, I say, this is a cute dress. We were all looking at the same cute dress. Great fashion sense. <laughs> Um, and she said, it really is. And as she continued talking, I said, you have an accent. Where are you from? Tell me. I'm from Virginia. Um, and we just started talking. She said, I'm from Eastern Europe. And so we continued to have a conversation. And it was a lovely afternoon. But when I went into the car and I called my mom, I said, Mom, I just saw a woman. I thought she was black, and she wasn't. And I saw a woman, and I thought she was white, and she wasn't. The black people aren't black, and the white people aren't white. <laughs> Um, because in Boston, you go into different communities and you don't ask someone, are you X, Y, or Z? Because it could be very offensive. There's cultural pride. You don't ask someone who looks like they are from a Latin American country and you just assume that they're Cuban or you assume, no, you want to just get to know them. You ask them what their name is. You ask them um, about themselves. You ask them about the style that they're looking at with you. You have a conversation. And I learned very quickly to um, bring dignity to people because there's such cultural pride in the city. Well, I also learned in the world of disability that there are a lot of cultural challenges um, and different cultures um, accept or don't accept disability um, in, in certain ways and how it plays out into the school system. So I heard a couple of um, words that you all mentioned, and um, you do have to forgive me. I'm a preacher's kid, so I, when I hear things and I see themes, I just go for it. <laughs> 
Um, but the three A's that kind of come to mind that were a part of my notes is how do we um, become agents of change? You talked about being an agent. How do we become ambassadors and how do we become advocates? Um, for the particular population that God's calling us to. And so geography really matters because unlike the foster care system where proximity is a challenge, in the world of disability, proximity really does matter. Um, you are more likely to want to serve in certain populations with certain students and with disabilities in the school system more than likely if you've had proximity. Um, our one-to-one paraprofessional -one was amazing. Um, and one of the reasons she chose the field right out of grad school was because she had a relative, a distant relative um, with Down syndrome. And she knew what her life was like and how her life was impacted by this relative. Now, everyone's not going to have a relative. Prior to having our son, I didn't have much contact with people with disabilities. Um, but upon getting pregnant, my eyes were opened and I started to see things that I'd never seen before. That's the beauty of proximity. You start to see things. I can walk into a room and I can tell if a kid's on the autism spectrum. I walk into schools, I'm looking for a wheelchair. Let me find a wheelchair, you know? I'm looking for the kids who are different, who are learning a little differently. I'm looking for the kids who are working independently and then the kids who seem to have a little more oversight. They need a little more oversight. Um, and so proximity really does matter and it does matter in geography. And I believe that churches, even if your church is in the suburbs, every church is in a city that has a school. And last night in our listening in session, we talked about the importance of churches and church leaders, youth leaders, pastors, elders, women's ministry leaders, getting to know the principals in the school system. So then you can ask the principal, ask one, do we have any principals or teachers in here? Ask a principal or teacher the top five things they need in their classroom and get ready to sit for 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you and then be prepared to meet those needs. And that's what happens when you have proximity with marginalized populations. Yep. Yep. So I realize that all four of us are pastor's wives. And one of the things that that might indicate to people out here is that to, to really be an agent of change, you need to be a married woman. And I want you to know that that is not true. Um, there are so many, and this is just my plug, so I have a real heart for teenagers. Um, I love teenagers. In fact, all of my mom sensibilities came into fruition when I am around an angry teenager. Um, you know, and that was, that was, that was pre-menopausal too. It isn't just like, you know, like you might think, well, it's hormonal, Rosario. But no, no, it's always been that way. Um, there, are, there are so many teenage women, um, teenage teenagers, female teenagers, who will not be placed in a home with a mom and a dad because of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. They will only be eligible for adoption by women. So let me tell you what that means, church. Yeah. Okay, let me listen up, church. If you don't believe that single women are capable and competent of adopting teenagers, if they're called to do that, I'm not imposing this on you, if you're called, your church needs to be there for you. Because you know what? If not, then let me tell you what the church is saying. The church is saying, well, of course, same-sex couples should be adopting all these teenage girls. All right? So we need to think about this. You, every person in this room, I believe, I hope, is a member of a Bible-believing church. That means you're part of a family of God. Is it hard to be a single parent? Sure, yes, absolutely. But your church will be there. 
your church will be there. Yes. Actually, even on that note, so um, there's all these studies done on who, dis- disruption is the word used for kids placed in a foster home and the foster or an adoptive home and the family saying we can't do it anymore and the family choosing to have the kid move. And um, single women are most likely to, not, are the least likely to disrupt um, their, their placements of three or more children. So there's a lot of reasons for that, but single women actually do like statistically the best mm-hmm. at yeah. uh, raising ado- and adopting families. Right. Thank you for adding that. It's so that's and another. And when you look at the advocacy world, when you look at the IEPs, when you look at who's showing up at IEP meetings, when you look at who's teaching kids in the school system, women make up the majority. And so the advocacy piece, that's why it's really important to understand um, the, the belief that you can help speak up for those who can't speak for themselves until they're able to speak for themselves. And that's where we have to move right. towards, and I'm glad you pointed out the importance of single women, younger women, um, because unfortunately our church culture is waiting for you to move to that next season. And God is saying, no, what about the now season? You can be used and you can serve and you can change the world in this now season. Absolutely, and you're not somebody who needs to be fixed or fixed up. But I often wonder in the world of orphans, if um, the missing link isn't the church supporting single women who want to serve in this way. I'm not saying you have to. I, I, am, go- I am a very prescriptive about some things, but that's not one of them. <laughs> You know, that's so not nice of you, Rosaria. Don't tell us we have to change our lives for the gospel. I mean, come on now. Um, so just, just to know that, yes, we're a bunch of married women here. We've got all got a story, and, or 10. But for the single women in this room, I think you're the missing link. And if the church wants to give you pushback, I would be more than happy to defend you. So let's open up our questions to you. Do you have any questions for us? Um, either We've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about disability. We've talked about race. We've talked about class. We've, I've suggested that if you want to be a good helper, you need to li- live perhaps below your means and move elsewhere. Um, that's kind of obnoxious, maybe. Um, I've introduced the idea of safe family. We've talked about um, um, the difference between foster care and adoption. Homelessness, post-traumatic stress disorder. Come on, people. There's a lot to talk about. Questions? Yes. Have any of you done safe families or foster care with biological children? I have three that are getting older and having. Okay. Um, we've done some, and then um, of having children in our home. And how have you handled those conversations with your children? With your biological children. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have, um, so we had our permanent family in place before we started doing, so we had two kids, that, we had four kids, the three kids um, that were ours, I don't like how I count, Hard to remember. Um, and then we started fostering different teens, they were all teens that we knew ahead of time through our church, um, and did say families, which were kids we didn't know, and so we treat, we, our family, as a family, would talk and pray through each placement and each season, and and we're constantly assessing for where we're at, taking our temperature. Are we, are we healthy and in a good place? To, do we have something to pour out? Is this what the Spirit is calling us to? Um, which changed. When I was in my early 20s, I was just like a diehard foster. I'm going to foster 30 kids, and this is going to be my, my life. Um, and as I've gotten older, I just think um, it, there's just a constant conversation between 
like assessing where your kids are at. So I think some people are too cautious and out of like idolizing our kids and their safety. And some are too, um, what's the opposite of cautious? Careless. Careless. (laughs) And so I I do think, I always tell families in our church, like don't don't say no or not do it out of fear. Um, But there's also wise reasons to say no. And that's something that you discern in community with people who know you well and it's unique person to person. Mm -hmm. And I would say that sheltering your children is not necessarily protecting them. Right. So we were um, adopting teenagers and we had babies. Now all of our children come to us through adoption and foster care, but I think it's kind of the same principle. Um, in some ways it's almost easier because teenagers and toddlers, well, they both just grunt syllabically at you throughout the day, first of all. Um, and they just, it's like a lot of parallel play, you know, one is in, the nighttime sphere and the other is in the 5 a.m. sphere and you know so I will say our four kids are because of our foster care and adoption and um, so our foster care and safe families and then we have uh, my best friend their aunt has a, a daughter who's born deaf our life they are so empathic it is shaped them so much more than any like devotional I bought at the Gospel oh, yeah. Coalition conference and done with them nightly like I do those things too but it has shaped them in ways I never would have dreamed. And that's because it's clear to your children when you do this that Jesus is not some prop you pull out for a conference or for church or for youth group. Also focus on disability because if you have children with disabilities or you're fostering children with disabilities, you need to pay attention to your boundaries and your margin. There's a difference. Boundaries are what you're placing around something. Margin is the space that you need to create. And so you need to pace, you need, <laughs> you need, to, you need to pace yourselves um, with the needs of your children. And then choosing the school environment, public, private, homeschool. Um, but you have to know your wiring, you have to know your needs, you have to know your margin. The seasons of life make a difference, which is why I'm glad we brought up single women, younger women, because your pace and your season of life looks very different than when you maybe have one child, two children, one with a disability. So because the needs of disability are daunting at times, depending on the disability, um, you really need to be wise and prayerful and led by the Holy Spirit, ultimately. One more question from this side, please. Yes, stand. would you stand up to ask your question? Um, I'm a foster mother of a um, daughter entering teenage years or headed towards adoption. Can you speak to how to talk to her about her first mother in a way that does proper honor to her first mother while oh, also sets warnings of not following in her footsteps? Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I'm happy to take a stab, but if you'd okay. like to. So, I mean, I, 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 so my daughter, my oldest daughter was in that position, very much so. And what, what seemed to be the best thing was to let her take the lead and to do a really good job of listening and to, and to, to the best of my ability to remember that I'm a conduit that this is going to be a very a slightly different parenting relationship than, than, than say I might have had if I had known her from infancy, but, but it's an advocacy parenting and I'm gonna walk alongside her. But to be very careful about speaking negatively about or, or appearing to um, presume that, that you are wiser or better 
than the birth mother, um, especially for a teenage daughter who's really working out identity issues. She needs to be in somewhat in the, the front of the line of that. Danae, do you agree? I, oh, I would say too, I think that if you have, even an adoption in America, most often your kids are not orphans. They still have living parents and grandparents that, that they grew in their mother's womb and their, their blood and DNA and there's history and story that matters to God and it matters to them. And so I tell my kids as they're able to hear it and ready that I, I think I have one of the closest links besides them to their mother because we're both mothers to them. And I, there's a lot of pain and brokenness and sorrow I have over their life, the, the lives of our different kids' birth mothers. Um, but I'm praying for her like I pray for nobody else because I do believe that God wants to redeem and restore her. And even though I get the privilege of raising her children and being a mother as well, actually God... Like, I think because part of their healing journey, this has been true in my own life, that when you've had brokenness with a mother, God doesn't just give you one mother to replace that. He gives you, like, 20. And my kids need more than me, and they need more than my, their, their birth mom. They're going to need a lot of mothers and a lot of fathers, as they, and that's why they need the family of God. And so I would say, like, I don't, I would be careful not to place any fear of be following in your, like, I would be more fearful than following in my footsteps. <laughs> like, 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 be more aware of your own family patterns and sins and just speak life into the story that I like, like hope for redemption and restoration as much as they're able to and let them take the lead in setting that pace. And I think also to be prepared for the rejection of the birth mother, which happens a lot too, because birth mothers need to move on and that's okay. So there's a lot of things that need to go on. Should we just take a few more questions? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of at a loss for what time it is, so forgive me. I don't know, what, I, should we end at four? Is that correct? Is that what we're supposed to do? Right, but I think we have to, we're, we're supposed to leave the room. Okay, let's take one more question from this side and one more question from that side. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so I have a couple friends that are single who mentioned adoption, and I will never forget being surrounded by other friends who are just like, oh, but you're single. And so then it's like, okay, so this small conversation never makes it to like the larger community in the church and it never makes it to leadership. So I'm curious, like, from a kind of an upwards approach, but also from a top-down approach. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question is, I've had single friends who are called to, uh, to, to adoption and fostering, but, that, that, you know, at the, at, the, at the micro level, the culture of the church so rejects that that the conversation never really gets to uh, maybe a theological discussion or, um, uh, you know, what do the elders think or that sort of thing. Um, and so what was the, so was that the question? How do we, how do we in the church demystify this? And are we dealing with myth? Are we dealing with stereotype? Um, how do we confront that? Is that your question? Yeah. Okay, and how do we get the leadership to enter in? And I think some of us are probably here quaking, thinking, but, but what will the leadership do when they enter in? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Go yeah. ahead and tell the truth. That's right. Tell so, the truth. All right, what do, you, what do you all think? Yeah, I mean, at our church, we just take extra, like we do videos and stories and we, of women, single parents who are fostering. Um, like a city, so citywide, we'll do, we'll share um, we'll pray for, like, we're very 
intentional about honoring the stories of single parents who have chosen to foster and adopt. Or do, and kinship care is another one um, that a lot of times we forget when a grandparent or an aunt or uncle is raising their kids that there's not always the financial and um, therapy and counseling support or you know special needs uh, advocacy, all those things that you get as a foster parent. You get all these extra privileges that a lot of kinship families do not get. And so we're just, we tell a lot of, a lot of storytelling I think is the best you can do. I think it's always better to, to approach it positively when you're doing culture change. Like look at, like let's be praying and excited about what God is doing through these, these women than to be like complaining and uh, you know, that seems to work better in our case. All right, one question from here, yes? first step was pausing because life was happening and I had to really grapple with the new normal. But I remember, um, and I usually share names with the positive stories instead of sharing names with the negative stories. <laughs> There'll be a book one day with the names of the negative. <laughs> and then you all will know all of those medical doctors and their peers. Um, but I remember a mom named Roxanne um, who was heading a parent advocacy group for kids with Down syndrome. And she heard about our story and she met me and she said these words, when you are ready, we are here. I didn't understand it then because I just knew I needed to care for this baby and grapple with what is next. But what I learned um, in the three years prior to public education was the power of advocacy. So you already said you have a heart to advocate. God has given you that heart to advocate. He will also provide the resources, the support, the guidance, but you first must just take that step of faith. If you would have told me a decade ago, Regina, your advocacy is gonna lead to networking and mobilizing all of these parents, and then one day the mayor's gonna call you and have a seven minute phone conversation, you're gonna think it's a prank and it's actually not, you're not being punked, and he's gonna tell you that he wants you to help impact the city of Boston. I would have laughed, I would have had a Sarah moment, and I probably would have said no thank you, because leading up to that, it was very dark. So. What I'm saying to you, if you already know what the conditions in the school are, that's something to advocate about. Um, you need to um, educate yourself on the federal laws. You need to educate yourself on the least restrictive environment. Educate yourself because an advocate um, and a parent 
with an advocate, a voice of advocacy is just an unstoppable force. And they're not ready for you when you walk in the door. Roxanne said to me, Regina, you know a lot. You speak up all the time. My mom said I was a public, I was a public speaker in Virginia, but she said, now I've really got something to say. Leave it to your mom, right, to tell you the truth about yourself. But what she told me at the time was, Regina, when you arm yourself with information and you continue to strengthen the advocacy muscles, because they are muscles that must get strengthened, and they don't get strengthened on your own, they get strengthened in community. So whatever disability your daughter has, you find that support group, you get in that support group. Other parents start to help arm you with the advocacy muscles, and you go to the school. Always email when you have questions. Always leave a paper trail. If you don't like the answer, you ask them who their, their boss is, and you ask them how to spell their name, because then it lets them know you're serious. And Roxanne said, you will become that mom, and you need to be prepared for that. And I said, what does that mean? She said, that mom. <laughs> but because I have that Southern flair, I can still say, thank you. I love your shoes, cute girl, cute dress girl. While I'm also saying I'm not here to play around because my child needs X, Y, and Z. But here's the thing you always have to remember, too. And I had three or four other parents who taught me this. Everything I know, I learned from other parents. And I only did what they told me to do. One parent said, you treat your child as a child as a client. Because if you go into IEP meetings or you go into any advocacy meetings, you see an attorney talking about their client. They're not sitting there crying and boo-hooing and hoping that you want to help their poor child. And No, your child is the client and you are there to represent your child. That's what being an ambassador, right? Being kind of that attorney. So you, you walk in, you're armed with resources, you know everything there is to know about your child, the disability and the support networks that you have, you become that parent that they say, okay, she's here. We may just need to either give her what she wants because they know what you're coming for because you've already sent a paper trail. Or they will try to push back. Districts will sometimes do that and play the delay game. And well, let's see if this will work. And let's see if this will work. But then when you do like I did, well, we don't know if there's a seat in the school. Oh, actually, this morning I called, and you still have six seats for kids with special needs in that classroom. So excited. I visited last week, and it looks like the perfect environment. Well, Mrs. Robinson, that's not actually how we choose schools for your child. Really? I thought you have tours for every child in the district, and public education is for all students, and all means all, and that's all all means, right? <laughs> So you go armed with resources, and you have a couple of girlfriends who've gone before you. And I'm serious, you guys, because it is a daunting, isolating, exhausting battle to advocate. And but you need to have your girlfriends to say, this is about to happen. Help me. Prepare me. And they will. And you'll be able to move forward. And I would just say, if you're not like wired Regina's way, find a sister in your church who will do that with you. you so yes, have an advocate. You don't actually, like exactly. if you're like, I you're right. can't even picture myself like giving back the wrong food order at McDonald's, let alone <laughs> like find, like you don't have to do it alone, you know? So that would be... The, that's the community. You're absolutely yeah. right. But the other piece I want to say I think is really important in this conversation is we when we get into walking with foster care, um, you know, working within neighborhoods that are really disadvantaged, um, 
special needs is anytime the word should, like I, I don't know if, I don't think you said that, but like this feeling of like what what should I do is we have to be praying and seeking God for what that looks like. And so, you know, we have kids who are in public school and we have kids who are not and we're praying through each decision and having a kid in the public school allows us to advocate for all kids. Yes. All, not all four of my kids need to be in that public school for me to be very present in my local public school. But all four of my kids have very different stories and very different needs. Yes. And so I would just say when it comes to being a single parent and all, all these questions, prayer and community has to be such a, the right community that's going to maybe be in a little, a little that has some um, courage, you know, will be in prayer with you and that you're discerning and listening to the spirit and, and stepping in. Um, together with that. But don't do and, it by yourself. Yeah. Yes, community matters. Well, and and if we would stop backsliding on this issue, community would be there. Yeah. You see, the church has been backsliding. Again, that's a term we tend to use for individuals in their deal, in their personal dealing with sin. But I think that when you look at something like, and we don't have time to do it because I've got to get to another panel, but later today, look at Jeremiah 3, 21 to 4, 4. The Lord makes a promise there that when we deal differently with the Lord, he will heal our backsliding. You know, we wouldn't have to be creating superstar moms who uh, you know, have attorney personalities. And uh, I mean, we love it. But I mean, not everybody has that, right? But if, if, the, if the church were not backsliding on this issue, that would not be the case. All right, we've gone way past Wait, our one time. Wait, one more verse, one more verse, because she started with Hebrews 13. Yeah, you yeah. need to continue reading Hebrews 13 because right, it, it says the Lord will never desert you. And it says that the Lord is your helper. So you have to hang on to his word. You, you, more than anything, no matter who your child is, gifted and talented, foster care, kids with special needs, the Lord is your helper. Depend on Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org. Support for this podcast comes from listeners like you. Learn more and join us at tgc.org slash donate.